Well, hello and welcome to Church Online again. My name's Brendan McLaughlin and I'm uh, one of the ministers here at Irwin Anglican. And I thought I'd start with some famous last words. Now, these last words are not attributed to anyone in particular. They're just amusing things that people have said right before meeting their doom. So uh, a man, this is a man on an African safari. He said, maybe he's not hungry. Or a guy on a bucks night. Hold my beer and watch this. And then there's an army general. Oh, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. Uh, how about a girl on a bushwalk? Oh, it looks harmless. And my favourite, hey, watch this thing drift. Ah, now, I mention this because uh, today's passage is looking at drifting, but it's not the kind of drifting you do when taking a corner at high speeds. It's the kind of drifting that can occur in the life of a Christian. Uh, we're kicking off a new sermon series this week looking at the book of Hebrews. And look, Hebrews is one of the, the general epistles, one of the general letters in the New Testament. And the interesting thing about Hebrews is we actually have no idea who wrote it. Uh, for a long time it was attributed to the Apostle Paul, but that uh, theory has pretty much been debunked. Our best guess is someone like Apollos or Barnabas, but we, we actually ha can't be certain. Nor can we be certain who it was written to. There's no sort of, you know, to the saints at Galatia or to the saints at Philippi, uh, like some of the other New Testament letters uh, tell us. What we do know, however, is the kind of people this letter was written to. Uh, from the context of uh, the content of the letter, we can tell that its original recipients were Jewish Christians, hence the title Hebrews. That's another word for Jews. And these Jewish Christians were in danger of drifting in their faith. Uh, now, they weren't fall, uh, in danger of falling away completely per se, but they were drifting. And the letter tells us why these Christians uh, were drifting. So firstly, they lived in a pluralistic society, just like we do. Uh, these were probably urban Christians, given the, the numerous references to city, the city in this letter. And like any city, these Christians were surrounded by a whole bunch of different worldviews uh, or religions, and they were all vying for their allegiance. Second, they were experiencing persecution, just like we do. It seems that publicly maligning Christians or Christianity today is what makes people a hero. Well, according to Hebrews chapter 10, not only were these Christians being publicly maligned, some of them had had their property confiscated, while others had gone to prison for their faith. And thirdly, they were not meeting together, together regularly. That's Hebrews 10.25. Well, just like us right now, isn't it? And the author says, look, given all these pressures that you're under, I'm writing you to give you the one thing that will stop you from drifting, the one thing that will keep you firm in your faith. And that one thing is Jesus. You see, Hebrews chapters 1 to 10, and that's the chunk we're looking at this term, is uh, the author telling us how amazing Jesus is on the one hand, and then telling us what difference that should make to us in our lives. And the passage that was just read for us uh, kicks off this whole process. So I've got four points today to help us begin to see these two purposes of the author. Uh, now these points should come up on your screen, and they begin with the author telling us, 
three amazing things about Jesus, and that is that Jesus is God speaking, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Jesus is God, verse 3. And then thirdly, Jesus is greater than the angels, verses 4 to 14. The author then tells us what we should do with this information, uh, and that's in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and I've titled that, Pay Attention to Jesus. So friends, if you're feeling somewhat pressured uh, by society who telling us to either conform to society's norms or to keep silent, then we will benefit, benefit just as much from this passage as the original readers would have. So let's look at some of the amazing things the author tells us about Jesus and then uh, what to do about that. And the book of Hebrews uh, begins on the fly. So as mentioned, the author doesn't identify himself or his recipients. He just jumps straight in. Hebrews 1 verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the author is talking about revelation here. Now, not the book of Revelation, but God revealing himself to his people. And what he's saying is in the Old Testament times... There were many ways in which God revealed himself, many, many means, various means through which God talked to his people. Now, the main way was through the prophets, as, as the author says. Prophets were uh, just, just ordinary people uh, who God chose to proclaim a particular message through. We actually have no idea how this message came to and through uh, the prophet, other than the Holy Spirit was involved. But what we do know is that when God spoke to a prophet, they A, knew it was God speaking, and B, knew what message to preach. But God used various other means as well in the Bible. Uh, so there was a burning bush when it came to Moses, wasn't there? Uh, sometimes angels showed up to pronounce a message. Uh, some people had dreams like Joseph and Solomon and Daniel. There was even a talking donkey, believe it or not, at one stage in Numbers 22. But the reason the author tells us all these different ways is because all that changed with the coming of the last days. Verse 2. Now, whenever the Bible talks about the last days, it's talking about the time period between when Jesus first walked the earth some 2,000 years ago and when Jesus will one day return to bring in the end of the age. So the last days is any time within those two uh, bookends. And what that means is we are living in the last days right now. And what the author says is, if we want to listen to what God has to say now, there's only one way to do that, and that is through the Son, Jesus. Okay, The only way Christians can hear from God now is through listening to what Jesus said when he was here on earth, as recorded for us in the New Testament. Now, look, friends, this is both wonderful and difficult at the same time. It's wonderful because God wants to talk to us. He wants to have a relationship with us. That's great. But it's difficult because, well, this is the only way God speaks to us now. Right? That's it. There's no fuller or more final revelation to come. Now, that's not to say that there's no prophecy. Okay? The Apostle Paul tells us we should actually uh, want 
prophecy. He encourages us to pray for the gift of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14. But any prophecy that comes up won't provide extra revelation for us. Right? Jesus' words, as found in the New Testament, are it. Full stop. And friends, this should not surprise us uh, too much because this is how any relationship works. You see, to be in a relationship with, with, with anyone means having to accept that person's non-negotiables. Uh, what I mean is, that, you know, it happens in marriage, it happens when you have kids, it happens with friendships, uh, you name it. So whatever relationship you're in, there are certain things that we can negotiate, okay? But there are other things of which that person will say, look, this is it. And if you don't like it, then leave. And this is one of God's non-negotiables. If we want to hear God speak right now, we go to Jesus, because Jesus is God speaking. Well, the next verse tells us why we go to Jesus. So verse 3, uh, where is it? The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So he's talking about God's glory here. Now, God's glory refers to things like God's majesty, God's beauty, uh, and God's splendor. So think about all those times that God shows up in all his glory in the Old Testament. Uh, so uh, one example is the pillar of fire in the desert. And that pillar of fire uh, separated the Egyptian army from the nation of Israel. You see, just before the parting of the Red Sea, the Egyptian army shows up uh, and closes in on Israel. But they're stopped from attacking Israel uh, while God parted the Red Sea by this huge pillar of fire. Now, what's that pillar of fire? It is God's glory. Uh, another example is when God descended on Mount Sinai in this enormous earth-shaking electrical storm. I don't know if you recall, but uh, the Israelites said, oh, look, Moses, you go over there up on the mountain and, and you talk to God and we'll stay all the way back over here and you just come and tell us what God said. All right? That's God's glory. When God speaks to Job in Job chapter 38, we're told that he speaks to him out of the tempest, out of the hurricane. Right? That's God's glory. And when God appears to the prophet Ezekiel, we're told it was like this, this heaven-like picture of, a, of an enormous throne, and the figure on the throne is just uh, shielded from us by this huge blinding light, and the throne is sitting on these enormous wheels that turn and spin, uh, and they're being, um, uh, what is it, uh, uh, escorted by these majestic heavenly creatures. All right? That is God's glory. And so understand what the author is saying in Hebrews chapter 1. He's saying that Jesus is the hurricane becoming a human. Jesus is the earth-shaking electrical storm becoming flesh. Jesus is the blinding light that would literally damage our eyes if we stared at it. I mean, it's brighter than the sun, taking on a form that we can actually gaze at. And that is how amazing Jesus is. Now, you might say, well, well why doesn't the author just say that Jesus is God? 
Why all this, you know, uh, saying he's the exact representation of his being? Well, he actually does say that Jesus is God, down in verse 8. Where is it? But about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. But what he's doing up in verse 3 is he's trying to explain that Jesus is God, but at the same time explain that Jesus is distinct from God the Father. You see, God the Father and God the Son, not to mention God the Holy Spirit, are three distinct persons. That's what biblical Christianity believes. It's called the Trinity. Yet, they all share the same being, verse 3, the same makeup, the same nature. Now, the, uh, the Greek word for being there is the word hypostasis. So what it's saying is Jesus has the exact same hypostasis as God the Father and God the Spirit. Why? Because Jesus is God. And this is what separates Christianity from every other world religion or cult. Right? Christianity worships Jesus as God. You see, Islam accepts Jesus as a prophet, but doesn't worship Jesus as God. Hinduism claims Jesus is one of the many gods, not the one true God. Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was an angel, but they don't worship him as God. And Judaism, and that's what our original recipients were were sort of drifting back into, uh, at best Judaism says Jesus was a rabbi, but it does not worship Jesus as God. And what this means is, you know, you and I, we cannot just put Jesus on the pluralistic shelf along with all the other gods. Jesus is either way above all the other gods because he is superior in glory or he's way below them because he has falsely claimed this glory for himself. What this means is there are only two options when it comes to Jesus. Either we say to him, away from me, you liar or you lunatic, or we fall to our knees and we say, command me, my Lord. For Jesus is God. Yeah, there's one more thing uh, the author wants to mention before moving on. Now, this does seem a little strange to us upon first reading. The author then spends the next 10 verses outlining that Jesus is greater than angels. Uh, Now, why does the author feel the need to say this? Well, we can only surmise that the original readers were placing too high an emphasis on angels. Now, the author doesn't say that we should dismiss angels, either as fictional or as as, as not uh, irrelevant, Uh, nor does he say ignore them as some sort of a distraction. On the contrary, the the author actually holds angels in quite high esteem. Have a look at verse 7. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. All right, now what he's getting at here is like, uh, angels are pretty imposing creatures in the Old Testament. Uh, they're, They're described as warriors, okay? Do not ever mess with angels. The men of Sodom, tried to mess with two angels, and they were blinded, the whole lot of them, immediately. Uh, John the Baptist's parents questioned an angel once, and he was made uh, unable to speak for almost a year. Uh, Angels are imposing creatures. Furthermore, they have really important jobs. We see that in verse 14. 
are not all angels ministering spirits sent to those who will inherit salvation? Right? So angels use their warrior-like strength and power to serve Christians. Uh, they are magnificent creatures whose glory genuinely terrifies any person they meet. I mean, you know how an angel introduces himself in the Bible? He says, don't be afraid. That's their first words. Right? They are huge, powerful, magnificent creatures. And because of this, it's very easy to see why some people might elevate them to the status of worship. And so the author goes to extraordinary lengths. He dedicates pretty much an entire chapter uh, to explaining that as good as angels are, Jesus is exceedingly superior to them. Right, he quotes seven Old Testament references in verses 4 to 14, uh, which sadly we don't have time to go in, uh, to with, uh, in detail. But the sum total of these quotes is, look, as good as angels are, God has never called them son, verse 5. As important as angels are, God has never installed one as king, verse 8. As powerful as angels are, Angels were not who created the universe, verse 10. And as close as angels are to God in heaven, God has never said to them, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, verse 13. The author's point is, please do not mistake Jesus for just some other heavenly being. Right? That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses do. They think Jesus is an angel, but Jesus is no angel. Right, he is worshipped by angels. Verse 6, Jesus is the magnificent, divine God of the universe. So what do we do with all this? The reason I ask this is because there are actually no commands in Hebrews chapter 1. Right? Hebrews chapter 1 is simply a celebration of the greatness of Jesus. Now, the first command doesn't come until chapter 2, verse 1. Have a read with me. Uh, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Now, first, note the word therefore. Okay? Uh, this command is directly related to what we have just heard in chapter 1, directly related to the incredible greatness of Jesus. And the command is, pay the most careful attention uh, to, the, to the incredible greatness of Jesus. Now, uh, the 2011 NIV, that's what our Bibles are at church, I think is probably the most accurate English translation of this verse, but it still doesn't cut it. Uh, you see, the, um, the, the phrase, pay the most careful attention, translates one Greek word, which is pros echo. And pros echo is a very strong word. It's actually used uh, in 1 Timothy 3 verse 8 to describe being addicted to wine. All right? So it's, it's, it's translated as addicted in that verse. You know, alcoholics don't don't pay attention to wine, do they? They are addicted to wine. And so what the author is commanding us to do here is to be addicted to Jesus. Be obsessed with Jesus. Right? Don't just pay attention to Jesus. Don't just pay the most careful attention to Jesus. We need to be consumed 
with the greatness of Jesus. That's what he's saying here. So what does this obsession with Jesus look like? How do, how do we apply this command? Well, I'll tell you how not to apply it, all right? You don't do it by ignoring Jesus. You don't do it by only paying Jesus an hour to an hour and a half of attention once a week at church. All right? To be obsessed with something means you, it, it just naturally leads you to, to make time for that thing, don't you? So if you're obsessed with golf, you'll find time for golf. If you're obsessed with cooking, you'll spend hours in the kitchen. If you're obsessed with Netflix or reading, you'll find time for Netflix or reading. But it doesn't just mean you make time for it. You actually make provision for it too, don't you? I mean, if you're, if you're obsessed with music, for example, you will have all your music on your phone to listen to whatever you want. Or, or if you're a real purist, you'll, you'll have them on records. If you're obsessed with gaming, you'll have a gaming PC with high-end graphics card and monitor, won't you? Right? So to be obsessed with Jesus means you don't just make time for Jesus each day, you also need resources. Now what are those resources? Well, number one, your Bible. You open your Bible every day. Uh, but I also recommend that every Christian should have the New Bible Dictionary here and its sister, the New Bible Commentary, on their bookshelf. Get those resources. And then... Uh, get some devotionals, all right? We've got Keller's book on the Psalms here. Uh, I've got the Valley of Vision. You can open that every day. Or I've got a whole bunch of uh, Puritan devotions here. Right? These are the resources. These are the provisions you make if you're obsessed with Jesus, consumed by Jesus. And you open them every day to look at the hurricane who became man. Get addicted. That's what this command is saying. So that's the application. The author then concludes by telling us why we are to be consumed by, uh, with Jesus. I'll read verse 1 again. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. And that's what's going on with uh, the original readers here. So the author is comparing uh, life to sitting in a rowboat on a river. Now, if you're sitting in a rowboat on a river, you've only got two options, don't you? Number one is you paddle to where you want to go or you get carried along, uh, you drift with the current. And the current, according to the Bible, is things that the world tells us we should be doing, things that the flesh tells us we will enjoy doing, and things that the devil tells us we will get away with doing. So we can either paddle against the world, the flesh and the devil, or we can drift along with them. Now, there are two kinds of drifting when it comes to Jesus. Okay? We can either drift as a Christian or drift as a non-Christian. You see, when non-Christians hear about the incredible greatness of Jesus and how we are to be obsessed by him, they feel no urgency. They have no desire to be vigilant. They have no need to pay the most careful attention. Uh, and it's to them that the author gives this warning in verse 2. 
For since the message spoken through the angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Now, what is that message spoken through angels? It's a reference to Mount Sinai when God, you know, descended in that huge electrical storm and he gave the Old Testament law to Moses. We're told it happened through angels. And those who broke God's Old Testament law were punished for their sins, okay? But the author says, how much more punishment should we expect if we ignore Jesus? Why? Because Jesus is not some prophet coming to tell us how to find God. He is God coming to find us. So friends, if you feel no urgency about this command, no real need to pay attention, then you've probably got bigger fish to fry. So with all due respect, can I encourage you to do business with Jesus before you meet him face to face. But when Christians hear the call to be obsessed with Jesus, it should wake us up. Right? That's what had happened to these original readers. They'd fallen asleep. There was no urgency. There was no vigilance. There was no need uh, for this obsessive paddling. They were simply being dragged along by all the pressures they were facing. Yet when Christians hear this command, they recall that there is no standing still in the Christian life. You're either moving forward through obsessive paddling or you're going backwards with the current. So what should Christians do? We should get addicted to this great, great man called Jesus, the electrical storm who became a human. Friends, look, we are facing a lot of pressures right now as Christians, just like the Hebrews were. So we can either be dragged along by all those pressures, or we can make the time for the Lord Jesus. We can make the provision for the Lord Jesus. And we can beg that God will continue to show us how incredible the Lord Jesus is by getting addicted to him. For we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away.